In this episode, we talk with Mario Fraioli. Mario is a well-respected coach, athlete, and founder of the Morning Shakeout podcast and newsletter, which comes out every Tuesday morning. And if you aren't already a subscriber, consider this a recommendation to become one. We cover the Boston Marathon race weekend, gateways into ultra running, the future of our sport. We dig into the behind the scenes of his content creation process at the Morning Shakeout. We look into his thoughts on consistency, inspirations for the work he does. We get into his coaching background and he gives advice for newcomers that are trying to break into the profession. If you are someone who enjoys banter about our sport, but also have thought about putting running related content out into the world, or if you have ever thought about getting into coaching, this is a great episode. Mario is one of those rare individuals who is equally talented as an athlete, a coach, and a media person in our sport. I think you will enjoy this one. And without further ado, welcome Mario to the show. Hey, Mario, welcome to the Single Track Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, so I had a couple questions prepared for you, but I want to address the latest thing that's hot off the press, and that is the Boston Marathon. Can you walk us through what inspired you to return there, what the weekend was like, and if you want to talk about the training and the lead up in the race itself, that'd be great too. Sure. What's today? Thursday, we're having this conversation, so I guess I'm three days removed from the 2021 Boston Marathon, the first ever fall Boston Marathon. It was my fifth time running the event. And I decided that I wanted to do it this year because it was in the fall. That was really the impetus behind it. Hopefully there's never another fall Boston Marathon. Again, the only reason we had it this year was because the spring edition got postponed and they bumped it to October and originally I wasn't going to do a marathon this fall, but when I saw that Boston was going to be in October and I realized that I had a qualifier, I just thought I had to do it to be a part of it, experience it. And I'm really glad that I did. This audience is primarily a trail running audience. Mm -hmm. I think obviously the Boston marathon has name recognition in any corner of our sport, but I would hope so. <laughs> but for those that aren't familiar with East Coast running and maybe they've just heard of Boston, can you explain what makes that race what it is in terms of a marquee event and like why you keep returning to it? And even beyond the running of it, what sort of the energy is like and what the community feels like in the uh, days leading up and then after as well? Yeah, it's the marathon. And that's how I grew up with it. So I'm from central Massachusetts just outside of a city called Worcester, which is about 25 to 30 minutes west of Hopkinton, where the Boston Marathon starts with the race, even before I had any real interest in running, because traditionally it takes place on Patriots Day in April, which is a holiday in Massachusetts. Right. Uh, all the schools are closed. So when I was a kid growing up, I didn't have to go to school on that day. My mom, who was not an athlete by any stretch, would watch the Boston Marathon every year, and I would watch it with her. I still remember the names, even though at the time I didn't follow them or follow the sport. I mean, the Cosmos Nendetis and right. Moses Tanui's and all of those names from back in the 1990s. I remember like the Uta Pipigs of the world. Like I just, I, I remember it very vividly. Um, and 
I was just inspired by the event. I, I never said as a kid, like someday I'm going to run that. I didn't even know that it was a possibility that didn't come till much later. But once I did get into running in high school, I actually had a Spanish teacher who volunteered at the Boston Marathon, the hundredth running of the Boston Marathon. And she gave me her jacket from that race. And, um, still one of my like treasured possessions to this day for some odd symbolic reason. And then as I got older, when I was in college, I volunteered at an aid station at the Boston Marathon. So I got to experience it up close for the first time and was just completely blown away by the energy of it. I actually remember my teammate Bergie and I, we went and picked up pizzas for the volunteer station in Wellesley where we were. And we got, I think we had like three pizzas each in our hand and we ran down the road. This was while the race was not going on before the runners actually came by. And everyone was like cheering for us and going crazy. I'm like, this is insane. I'm like, this is just insane. It would be so cool to be a part of this someday. And when I got into marathon running after college, um, I wanted to run Boston more than anything else. And I wanted to qualify and I knew that I could qualify. So I did, I ran the Vermont city marathon 2007 and qualified for the Boston marathon, ran it the next year in 2008 for the first time. And I have, I've been to the Boston marathon in some capacity every year since 2003, with the exception of 2013, which was the year of the bombings and also the mm. year that I got married that same weekend. But I go back every year. My wife has accepted and, and has also run it herself, but has accepted that that's just an annual date on my calendar that I go back for, especially now living in California. It's a homecoming for me. I get to see my family. I get to see my friends. I just, I love everything about the race. I love the history of it. I love the course. I love the fans. Along the way, I love the weekend itself. Just the atmosphere around the Boston Marathon is unlike anything else that I've ever experienced. It's electric. And being back there this year for the first time since 2019 made me realize how much I missed it and how important it is to me and how energizing it can be for me, both athletically as a coach, because I have a bunch of athletes who race it year in and year out. And then just also as someone who's in, involved in running because it's such a big and important part of the community. This is a two-part question. I know we're only, you know, three days removed from the event, but what were your highlights from this weekend? And then what were your biggest takeaways from your own race? To answer the first part of the question, you may need to go back to the second one because chances are I'll forget it by the time <laughs> I answer this one. But for me, like the highlight of, of the weekend, first and foremost, was just going back and going home. I haven't been anywhere outside of California since March, 2020, when I, I got back from the Olympic trials marathon in Atlanta. This is the first time I've been on a plane in 20 months or so. First big event that I've been to mm. since then. So for me, just the opportunity to go home and actually see my dad and my family and some close friends while I was there was huge for me. That was a, a huge highlight. And then as far as the race and the weekend itself, there are multiple highlights. I'm just going into the city on Saturday, leading a shakeout run from Tracksmith Saturday morning, mm. hosting a live podcast after I hadn't done that stuff in a long time. That was a, a huge highlight. Again, didn't realize how much I, I missed it till I was back in it. And that was great. And all that happened before I even stepped to the start line. And then fast forward to Monday, race day itself, just being a part of it. And there's nothing like the Boston Marathon. If you ever have the opportunity to qualify or run it, 
with the charity bib or even just to go and, and spectate. I can't encourage that enough. It's one of the premier sporting events in the entire world. It's the world's oldest annual marathon. There's just a history and an energy to it that I've never experienced elsewhere. And I've been to a lot of races in mm. my life. So just to be a part of it and be like, I've got a bib for this, like I'm running, I'm a part of this day was really exciting for me. And then I'm happy to go through my race itself and the before, during and after of it. But yeah. the big highlight for me during the race, I had a rough second half. I had major stomach trouble from 12 miles on, but mm. I ran those first 12 miles with Craig Curley, who is someone I've been helping coach for the last few months. I had him on my podcast several months ago, and we really connected over that conversation and started working with him at coaching capacity. After that, he had been aiming for the Boston Marathon for a while himself, this particular edition of the Boston Marathon. He'd run it previously. And Craig's got a super interesting story. He's a member of Navajo Nation. He was formerly an elite runner who's trying to get back to that level. And this past Monday was Indigenous People's Day. And I had the opportunity, and it wasn't really planned beforehand, but we ended up running those first 12 miles together before I told him just to, to go because I needed to take care of myself. And that was really special to me, to be able to share those miles with him at that race that meant so much to me, meant so much to him on Indigenous People's Day as he's running, representing his people, the people of Navajo Nation and Indigenous people. Um, all around the country and, and the world. And that is just something that I will forever cherish. Yeah. And actually one thing it made me think about is, are there any, and we'll get into commentary on the trail running side of the sport later on in the conversation, but is there anything in like the ultra running mountain, ultra trail running world from an event standpoint that compares to Boston or any of these world majors? It's an interesting question from a historical perspective. I'd have to say maybe comrades mm. and there's a caveat with that. I've never been to comrades, but it's been around for a long time. I don't think road ultras, and this could be maybe part of our conversation later, yeah. get nearly the respect or recognition Let's that it. they deserve, but comrades been around forever. It's a huge race in South Africa. Comrades is like the race and it's got like such a history to it. You've got people who've run it year in and year out, the up years, the down years. It's very, very competitive. Some very fast runners go there every year and it's got this kind of carnival atmosphere to it from what I can observe from afar. And I think that combination of the atmosphere, but also the history really separates it from any other event. A lot of people say, oh, well, you know, UTMB at Chamonix. Yeah, to, to some level it does. It's big for a trail race and you've got this tiny town. It's the biggest thing in this tiny town. It's got a great energy to it. And I've been there multiple times myself and it's cool, but it's still like relatively new and trail running, ultra running as a competitive sport has been around for a while. It's really yeah. certainly hit its stride in recent years. And that event in particular has gained a lot of prestige and it, gets a lot of top athletes and recognition and it has some similarities to something like Boston, but I think comrades is probably going to be the, the closest thing just in terms of history, depth of competition, the importance that it carries, and then also the atmosphere of the event itself. Yeah. I think you hit the nail on the head too, with the statement that road ultras get far less fanfare and media recognition compared to the trail stuff. Like I consider myself to be a big fan of the sport. And when I think of road ultras, I think of 
either Zach Bitter or Camille Heron running around on a track or yeah, that's like the extent of it. <laughs> so why do you think it is? I mean, they're not as sexy in a lot of ways. Look at this social media driven world that we live in. That's very visual. You see photos from Chamonix or other mountainous, beautiful, natural environments. And why wouldn't you want to go there? It looks incredible. The terrain is very challenging. They're also very beautiful places. And I think you have a lot of trail and ultra runners who don't really like to run on the roads for, for whatever reason. And I think with the road, it's not, you know, it can be an adventure in its own way, but it can be repetitive as well. A lot of road races have multiple loops. People are like, well, if I want to, you know, go for a run all day, I'd rather be in the mountains and exploring a place rather than running loops on a road. I think that's, what's cool about comrades is it's right. point to point and it varies year in and year out. So it's got that going for it. I, I don't know. There's less, there's definitely less appeal, aesthetic appeal, I think to a lot of the road races, but also if you look at the competitive side of the sport, especially now where you're getting faster and faster athletes into it, some of them might want to stay on the roads and chase like a fast 50K or 100K a la Jim Walmsley or Camille Heron, that sort of thing. But you also have a lot of folks who are getting into the sport at a competitive level who want to get away from that stuff and want to get away from chasing splits and chasing times. And you can do that on the trails and in the mountains. And there are just a multitude of reasons, but those are the biggest ones that jump out to me. I think about Ricky Gates, every street, San Francisco challenge. This would be like logistically impossible, but if you could somehow shut down an entire city and have runners basically do like a hundred miles or 50 miles through all the coolest areas of a city, I could see that being interesting from a fan standpoint, because obviously you can check in at the runners by just like navigating across the city to another road and yeah. it'd be easier to follow than like a Western States, I think, but you'd have to, you know, logistics would be crazy and it's hard enough to get like Boston, you know, the cops and so all those services put together to close down roads. So, right. It's really challenging. There's so many layers of bureaucracy that you have to jump through to do that and shut roads down. It's costly, it costs a lot of money. So you can do that with a big event like the New York city marathon and shut the city down. You've got 50,000 plus runners and sponsors who want to support the thing, but imagine trying to stage an ultra and people do this loop all the time. If you run around, I think it's Manhattan. Yeah. A loop of Manhattan is about 50 K on the nose and people do it all the time, like just yeah. as a run and you have to be self-supported and navigate it yourself. But if you were to actually make a race out of that, I think a lot of it is on some bike trail and stuff. You definitely have to shut down some roads. You'd have to one, get a lot of people to do it. You'd have to get right. sponsors involved. But to your point, I think it's super cool. It's like, Hey, we're just going to do this. Like lap of Manhattan it happens to be like 50 K yeah. type of thing. I think that'd be really rad, but there's also challenges in just trying to make something like that happen. Awesome. Well, one of the many things that's cool about your situation is that you have your hand in basically every area of running from a media standpoint, from a coaching standpoint, from a participation standpoint. And I want to zero in on trail running. I'm curious, what are you excited about most in the sport of trail slash mountain ultra trail running right now? Just how much excitement there is around it. I feel like every year the sport, and when I say the sport, I mean the elite slash competitive side of it. Mm. is growing. You've got more and better runners getting into it. You're seeing more depth at races. You're seeing more investment from race directors, from brands into the events themselves, the athletes, some of the, the prize purses. And it's getting to a point 
it's not getting to a point, it's at a point and it's only going to grow where it's considered a legitimate sport with depth in it. And yeah. people who win races can legitimately say like they're one of the, the best ever. And I think there've been through the generations, lots of great and fast ultra runners, but there's usually, you know, a one-off here and there, like a Ted Corbett or like a Koros or something like that, or like a, a Scott Jurek who dominates Western States like year in and, and year out. But now you're just seeing much faster athletes, much better athletes who are shattering records left and right, whether it's on the trails or on the roads. But the big thing is you're seeing much more depth and these races are getting more competitive. They are races from the get go. And I love that just as someone who's been involved in competitive running at all levels for over 20 years now, 24 years, I guess, since I got started in high school. And I just, I love seeing that. I love seeing it turn into a, a legitimate sport that people are starting to take more and more seriously on a number of different levels. How far away do you think we are, maybe in terms of years, from like a critical mass of collegiate athletes saying, I'm going to make the jump right from college to the trails as opposed to I'm going to go run for like Hanson's Brooks, try this whole marathon thing. And then when I'm like 32, I'm going to go to the trails. I don't know, honestly. I really don't because it's a hard sell, I think, to to a lot of people. I think it takes a certain type of of personality as well as skill set to be really successful, not only on the trails, but just ultra running in general. And I don't want to say I'm a good example because I'm not a, yeah. a great athlete compared to the people that we're talking about, but I'm decent and I've run everything from meters or hundred meters, really all the way up to, to 50 miles. And even still now, I just don't feel like as, as an athlete, as far as the things that I'm interested in, I think this goes for a lot of other people as well, even though I've done ultras, I'm not necessarily wired as an ultra runner, as someone who is like just jonesing to go even longer or to the next challenging thing. I've dipped my toes in it and I've had, you know, some success at, at a couple races, but I don't like love it, love it. And I think it is for folks who, a lot of folks who are coming from a traditional competitive running background, meaning like cross country track, or even if they spent a little bit of, of time on the roads, there's definitely a learning curve there. Yeah. And I think it's a bit of an acquired taste and it just takes some time for many people to figure out if it's something that they want to continue to, to pursue because not everyone's going to have great success right away. And that could turn a lot of people away. So as I talk through it, I don't know if we'll ever see like a, a critical mass, but I yeah. think as a sport becomes more competitive and there is more depth and there is more sponsorship money and prize money and potential appearance fees and, and that sort of thing, competitive athletes who want to make a career out of running and feel like the longer they go, the better they are. So this is something that's worth exploring. They'll be drawn to it sooner and sooner, but I, at a critical mass, I don't know. Yeah. It's interesting because, and again, uh, I have no, I didn't run in college. I have no experience. I'm just a spectator, but it's interesting to me that there's this whole fall season, the cross country season that essentially primes these athletes to enjoy trail running. And there isn't as much of that connection post-college that I would expect. Yeah. But I think of this as well. I mean, you've got some folks who will still race a little cross country after college, True. but even those opportunities are very limited. If you run for a club 
And usually if you're at the club level, you're not a professional. There's a club championship every year here in the United States. And that can be a big deal. And you do like a, a fall cross country season because you're part of a mm -hmm. team. And it's something you can do, but it's not nearly as popular as the sport is at the collegiate high school level. And professionally, there's not a lot of incentive for even former NCAA cross country champions to stick with cross country. The world championship in cross country, I believe, isn't even an annual event anymore. I think it's every other year. Um, so it doesn't have quite the importance even internationally as it has, um, and certainly not here domestically. If there were a circuit, maybe there'd maybe be more incentives for athletes just to do that. So I, I don't know that it's necessarily about continuing with the trails. One thing that is a little disappointing to me is that and look, I should preface this by saying I, I love ultra running. I'm a big fan of the mm. sport. I coach a number of ultra runners. I'm continually just intrigued and, and impressed by it. But I'm also very upset that a lot of sub ultra distance trail races aren't that competitive and aren't really emphasized quite as much as the ultra races. It seems to be like people jump up and it's got to be like, super long and super challenging, or it's not worth the attention. I was stoked to see that the marquee event at Broken Arrow a couple of weeks ago was the was 26K, which ended up being yeah. like 23 or 24 because they changed the course. But I, I love that that was the marquee event, that that's where most of the pros went. That was the most competitive. That was where the prize money was. That was where the media coverage was. I love that. That was great racing. And it was sub two hours for the men, I think two hours, 20 minutes for the women. And we saw some just great competition and great racing. And it's like, yeah, you know, maybe, you know, 24K, like doing a loop doesn't sound as challenging as doing like two of those loops. And it's not as hard from a duration standpoint, but I love the intensity of competition. I love just close racing and it's natural and expected that over longer races, people are going to spread out more and that head to head, you know, battling for you know, 10, 15, 20 hours, it's less likely than it is likely to happen. Right. But over a 23 K race, people are going to be pretty close through most of it. And you've got to stay on your toes. And, and I love that. And I just wish in, I'll just speak about the U S scene here. I miss, mm -hmm. I wish there were more emphasis on some of those shorter distance trail races that, that aren't ultra distance. There are national championships on the trails from like, you know, 10 K half marathon, I think marathon all the way up to you know, 50 K or so, but those shorter ones, they, some of them can be competitive, which is great. I love seeing it, but they never get the media coverage, you know, mm -hmm. that, uh, Lake Sonoma will get, or Western States will get, or, you know, name your name, your ultra will get, but there's some great racing there. You've got a guy like Joe Gray who actually won that race at Broken Arrow and has, I mean, I've lost count of how many national titles at this point and great world championship performances and national teams and, and things like that. And people know who, who Joe is at this point right. um, because he's done so well, but I still don't think he gets nearly the credit that he deserves for how good of an athlete he is at those sub ultra distances. People are like, Oh, he should move up. I'm like, no, why should he move up? He's really freaking good <laughs> at the short stuff. Um, like he knows his specialty and that's like saying you know, Courtney should move down to like the 10 K. <laughs> Yeah, it, exactly. And it's like, no, I don't think Joe needs to move up because that would like raise his profile or make his accomplishments that much better. I think people should just pay more attention to what a guy like Joe is doing and just how dominant he is at these things and just how hard it is to beat him. I think your example of the Broken Arrow Sky Race weekend is perfect. And 
it actually reminds me, I was talking to Dylan Bowman on a previous episode and he's pretty confident that the gateway to growth for this sport in the U.S. is that sort of uh, ramp of like sub ultra distances and introducing that to a U.S. audience because by contrast, it's so common in Europe. Like you don't have to jump right to a 50K like you do here. There's that whole Solomon Golden Trail series, et cetera. I think that would be a good thing for us to think about here. Yeah. Well, I mean, just speaking of my background coming from cross country and track and, and the marathon, it already exists there. Yeah. Not everyone gets into the marathon right away. Some people do they get into running late or they go to the marathon right away and they have some success and that's where they make their mark. But you have a lot of folks who come up from racing 8K, 10K cross country. They're racing 5K, 10K on the track. They move up and start doing some road racing. They get their feet wet in the half marathon and establish some competency there. And then they move up to the marathon, which as far as let's call it the Olympic program goes, and I don't mean just like at the Olympics, but just that range of events, let's say like 1500 mm. meters up to the marathon. I mean, look at Elliot Kipchoge. He's the best in the world. Well, before he was the best marathoner in the world, he was an Olympian and world championship medalist at 5,000 meters. And he's a great cross country runner. And that was his upbringing in the sport and then he moved on to the marathon and he's been super dominant and that's where he's established himself and i think the same sort of thing can happen in trail running there's no reason that it can't introduce people to trail running in an approachable way get them to do a 5k or 10k race and a lot to be fair a lot of the events that we see here in the states and and certainly over in europe they have a range of events that usually have something shorter. And I think that's great. And I think that's just a great, let's call it gateway, the longer stuff. And maybe you'll have folks who are like, I don't want to move to the longer stuff. I like the short stuff. And they're still in the sport, you know, whether they're competitive or not, they're still in the sport. They go to events, they're part of a community, but yeah, you're inevitably, you're going to have a number of people who, if that's their intro to the sport, whether they're competitive or not, um, curiosity very likely may get the best of them. They'll be like, huh. Well, this 10K, you know, trail race or this VK that I did was pretty cool, but it was over pretty quick. I'd love to see if I can go like a little bit longer. And then they start exploring the ultra distance racing. So I do think it can be a bit of a feeder system. And that's, I think that's a good thing for just the long-term health and, and vitality of the sport. But bringing it back to the competitive side of things, because again, like that's where my main interests lie. I'd love to see more folks who are keyed in on these longer distances, drop down and do some shorter distance trail races. And to some degree, if people are comfortable with it, dip their toes in the ultras to see if it's something that they like or something that they can be competitive in. It doesn't mean like once you go there, that's all you do. Yeah. Yeah. I think we've already been throwing out a lot of examples here, but is there anything else that you believe isn't big now, but it could be big in the future of our sport? I think here in the U.S., back to Broken Arrow, I think this is a great example of it. Stuff like the VK, it's very approachable from, I think, just a distance standpoint. Someone looks at that and they're like, huh, that looks really freaking hard, but it's only 5K. I'm not going to be out there for the entire day or multiple days. Like I can wrap my head around that. And from a competitive standpoint, someone can look at that and be like, huh, well, that's cool. I can race a VK for... 40 minutes to an hour and get a good hard effort in be in a an actual like race the entire way and have to be like on the gas the entire time competing against other people which again doesn't always happen in the super long races because things spread out a bit more and you know do something like that and have it be 
you know, it also makes, I think it makes for good viewing. And that's the other thing too, is like, you want to get people paying attention to trail and ultra running. Well, get them to watch a really competitive VK. Not everyone's going to tune in for a 20 hour UTMB. They might tune in like here and there. And the coverage of that sort of stuff is really impressive, but you can glue someone to YouTube live for 40 minutes if they're watching oh, yeah. a competitive race. And especially if it's in a mountainous environment, like it was for Broken Arrow, because there is beautiful scenery there and that's super inspiring but there's great competition and you can be engaged for that amount of time be engaged for the entire race like 40 minutes rather than watch 10 minutes here come back six hours later and see if anything changed so i think that's where there's a lot of potential for growth i think that's a great way for these things to grow they need exposure i think that's a great way to to grow the actual exposure first get people watching just trail racing you know get them watching like a 40 minute uphill race that's really really competitive in a beautiful place because then if they're hooked and you're like well what else is going on hey there happens to be a 26k the next day or two <laughs> days later well maybe they'll watch that and i think that's a great way to to grow the sport well you've already been hinting at it but i think that this carnival format could really take off to like what's being mm -hmm. done at broken arrow i was just out in chamonix for utmb week and it's just it's so much different to be at an event where there's five different races spread out over four days versus a hundred miler on a Sunday where everyone shows up and goes home the next day. As you can probably attest to as well, it's such a different experience and I would say a better experience. Yeah. There's something for everyone there. And I think that's the key. Is there anything you're worried about as we enter into this new decade where trail running and ultra running undergo sort of another growth phase? The two biggest things that I'm worried about one of them is almost exclusively on the professional slash elite side of the sport. The other one is more about the, the sport as a whole, certainly the elite side as well, but I think it trickles on down. So the first part is just as the sport gets more competitive and more money gets pumped into it in the form of sponsorship, appearance fees, prize money, that sort of thing, that it worries me that there is no comprehensive drug testing program mm. Mm. here in the U.S. and certainly around the world. And I did a whole podcast on this with Dylan Bowman and Jason mm. Coop for Coop's podcast a few months ago. So you can check that out. But there hasn't been any real progress made there. And I feel that the longer we go without there being any progress being made there, the harder it's going to be to unify it all. So Hopefully the powers that be can, you know, really make a push for a more comprehensive drug testing program, especially an out of competition program that is accepted by different governing bodies and REN race organizers. And that's consistent around the world because I feel like it could end up being the wild, wild west if not. So that's my main concern on the elite professional side of sport. Well, let me ask Other, a question. If you don't mind, I want to just ask a quick question. Do you think that this is already an issue in our sport, like drug abuse and essentially cheating? Is this already something we should be worried about? Or is this something that you're saying as the sport gets bigger, it will be an issue? No, it's already an issue. It's only going to become a bigger issue, I think, as the sport grows. And you'd be silly to think if there weren't people who were exploiting that already. I'm not accusing it right, 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 and i don't have any suspicions but look when there's a lot of money involved on 
the sponsorship and prize side of things. And a bad actor can look at that and say, well, there's holes in the system. I can definitely get away with some nefarious things here. It's happening already, but it's only going to get worse if it's not addressed immediately. Gotcha. And then the second thing is as the sport has grown and continues to grow, there are more and more commercial interests. And I, I did an entire podcast with Dylan about this for his pillar show, but we'll call it the iron manization of <laughs> ultra running. And we're starting to see it already. Iron man's partnered with UTMB. They're creating this worldwide series. There's a system of stones that you can qualify for the grand finale at UTMB, very reminiscent of what Iron Man has done with their events and placing this oversized importance on Kona in our sport. It's going to be Chamonix. And I think there are some benefits to that, but I also think that it really can hurt what makes the sport so special in, in the first place. And some of that is just the grassroots event nature of it. Certainly here in the U.S., it's a little bit different, or, you know, in other countries because you can have some bigger events, but I think it, it certainly affects that. Um, but then also I worry that it's going to be like the McDonald's of, of ultra running where they all look and feel the same and the quality is not terrible, but it's not over the top great either. And there are implications there for, I think, the elite side of things. But I also think it can definitely be a bit of a money grab on one hand. And I think that ends up hurting some of the, the spirit of the sport and what people like about it in the first place. I wonder how much this remains an international thing where you confront this issue once you leave the U.S. Because I know Bob Crowley, who is the former director of ITRA, he described U.S. trail race directors as this big group of wild Mustangs that couldn't be tamed. And mm -hmm. I, I wonder if that culture persists despite this and maybe UTMB and all of these big brands, they only end up corralling one or two races that were difficult to get into anyways. And so American runners don't see much of a change because they weren't traveling internationally en masse that much anyways. And again, I could be totally off here, but I'm just speculating. Yeah, I think there's some truth to that. There's definitely a difference between the how the sport is run outside the U.S. versus here. Again, like on the trail side of things, especially the events tend to be much smaller here because of land use restrictions. Mm. And that's something that may never change or is going to be really, really hard to change. So it'll be hard to you know have these massive events here in the U.S. But I worry about, I should say, I shouldn't speak for anyone else. I, I worry about a huge organization becoming so big that it ends up, I mean, if you look at Ironman now, there's so many events around the world yeah. that there are a number of them that don't have pro fields. You have a mm -hmm. number of them that end up having very thin pro fields you know, on the, and this is like a professional elite problem, but then you create these situations where pros will cherry pick events, see where they can like most easily get the points that they need to get to right. the grand finale type thing. And I've just never been a, a huge fan of that, but I've also seen like just the, the quality of the events as far as how they're run and the experience of, of the participant. And this goes for anyone who's participating, like Sometimes as the events get bigger and as they get like McDonaldized, as I say, that quality goes down, especially the events that get 
required. I mean, it happened, I've seen it happen a million times in triathlon. I worked for what was competitor group that owned the rock and roll marathon series. And I've seen what's happened to, to that series and just the, the quality of some of those events and even just some of the history of those events, like it's that have been taken over. They don't even look the same. And I worry about that happening in, in trail and ultra running as well. Right on. Well, hey, I want to transition to talking about the Morning Shakeout newsletter and podcast. This is a newsletter I have been subscribed to for years now. It's a podcast that I tune into with every episode that drops. I know that you serve all types of running audiences, but for anyone that's not familiar, can you describe what the Morning Shakeout is and and how it came to be and the rest? Yeah, I started the Morning Shakeout newsletter in late 2015. And it's been coming out weekly ever since then. I think this week was issue 309. So it's come out 309 weeks in a row. Mm. And really what it is, is what I'm paying attention to that week. I write about things that I've been thinking about, that I've been reading, that I've been watching, that I've been listening to for a while. There was a heavy emphasis on commentary of the sport events and other instances that have been happening and I've gotten away from that over the past year and a half, mainly because there's just been less events, more and more coming back now, but I, I just haven't been as interested in writing about those sort of things, but it's really my take on what I've been thinking about and a lot of the content that I've been consuming. And I try to share some personal stories and anecdotes and reflections with the hope that those stories, those reflections can inspire someone else or can teach them something. And that's really the basis of the newsletter and what I try to pull out of it each week for people who read it. And then I started the podcast as a compliment to the newsletter in 2017. So that's been going just about four years now. I think this week was episode 177 and I interview athletes and coaches and other people in and around the, the sport of running and really try to dig deep with them and learn more about them and what makes them tick. And again, try to impart some wisdom or inspiration for my listeners that they can then apply to their own life. And I really try to make both the newsletter and and certainly the podcast as evergreen as possible so that Mm. they have a long shelf life. So that's a big reason why I got away from doing commentary on events. I mean, after my commentary on an event, People may be interested in it, but a week later, no one cares. No one's going back to see what I said about the Boston Marathon in, in two weeks. It's on to the next event. Whereas if I share a personal story about something that I've been struggling with, and I, maybe I didn't even make it through, but just something that I'm struggling with, people really resonate with that. And it's something that they can go back to and continue to learn from, or even if it's an article that I've read and something that I've pulled out of it that really inspired or enlightened me, um, a reader can, you know, a reader can do the same. So through all of that stuff, I try to make it as evergreen and as valuable as possible to the person who's reading or listening to it. Really like that, that emphasis on the evergreen, and maybe that helps answer this next question, but you've recorded hundreds of podcast episodes at this point. What do you tend to look for in guests and what's the formula for an interesting interview? Well, I talk to people that I want to hear from. It's really that simple at the end of the day. I mean, if it's not something I'm curious about, or I feel like I can learn something from, or 
you know, that I want to have a, a conversation with, I don't have them on the show. So, I mean, it, it starts with just curiosity. I talk to people that I have a curiosity about, and I feel very fortunate that people have said yes to me in terms of, of having a, a conversation about wherever I really want to go with them. I think that's the biggest driver of the podcast is, is just curiosity. And as, as far as questions go, again, sometimes I'll have someone on who recently won an event. I mean, Alephine Tuliamuk is a good example. I, I interviewed her the week after the Olympic trials, actually the second time that I had her on the show. So, I mean, that was part of that conversation was very topical I mean, it was about that race, but I try to go a little bit deeper than that and not just talk about, oh, you tell me how you felt at, you know, 5k and how you were halfway and like what it felt like to, to cross the line, but just give it more context. Talk about the before, the after, how she felt about it stepping away. But that's not usually the, the case for me. Usually you know, it's someone that I, I may already know or have a relationship with or someone that I'd like to get to know a little bit more. And they're known for maybe being a great runner, being a great coach. And I like to go backwards and I, I know where they are when I have that conversation, but I want to travel the road with them, like how they got to that place, the, the people and experiences and opportunities that have influenced them along the way. And the only question I know that I'm going to ask a guest is the first question. You got to know where you're diving into mm -hmm. the to the conversation. And from there, my job is to listen to them and hear what they have to say. And chances are I, they're going to say something interesting or something that's worth following up on. And oftentimes like that's what dictates my next question. I don't have a list of, you know, 10 questions or 20 questions that I want to ask someone. My job as, as a host is to listen to my guest and to follow up on interesting answers. My job is to be curious. I mean, obviously going into a conversation, I, I have some idea of who this person is, you know, what they've done, maybe some of their, some of their bio or things that I want to talk to them about, like where I might pivot the conversation when we hit the dead end, but it's never a list of, of questions that I check off as I'm going along during an interview. There are a lot of common themes, I think that emerge through a lot of the, the conversations in terms of maybe the person's relationship to running, how that relationship has evolved over time. If they're an athlete, you know, competitiveness, digging into that a little bit deeper. I really try to get as below the surface as I can with someone and just curiosity that drives it. And it's having a keen ear and, and listening for interesting things that they say and just following up on something that they say that I, I want to learn more about. And, and oftentimes I'll ask some version of, can you tell me more, tell me more about that? And you just get them to go deeper into a topic than they ever have before, or get them to think about something that they haven't thought about in a long time, or maybe they haven't thought about ever before. So that's really like my approach to the, the podcast and a lot of the conversations that I have for it. You've done this 300 weeks in a row, which is incredible. And the newsletter, yeah. The newsletter, yeah. And I'm curious, how do you stay so consistent? Because, and I've been a subscriber for probably 250 of those. And I can tell that you're not going through the motions. I sense the heart and soul in every edition that comes out. What motivates the current cadence and, and how do you stay so consistent? Well, at this point, I've done 309 of them in a, in a row or whatever whatever it is. And it's just like, that's been, and it comes out every Tuesday morning. It's scheduled for 215 Pacific time. 
so 5 15 a.m on the on the east coast and it's kind of late morning in europe and other parts of the world get it i don't actually know when they get it, like later on tuesday sometimes on wednesday but i mean it's just a it's a part of my week at this point it's what i do every monday monday is production day for the morning shakeout it's when i do a lot of the writing for it and the editing and the refining of the email before it gets scheduled and sent out to everyone on tuesday morning that's when i put the show notes together for the podcast and, and publish it i do have a an audio editor who puts every episode together for me like the actual audio audio files and the intro and does all the edits and that sort of stuff but that's just every monday for me you know and there are times when for example this past week when i was racing on monday and then was in kind of rough shape afterward so i was having some stomach trouble but i knew that at some point i was going to peel myself off of the bed and write the shakeout because people were expecting it the next morning i think that's probably one of the biggest drivers of it is just there are people expecting it on Tuesday morning and I don't want to disappoint them, but you know, also the exercise, the weekly exercise for me of sitting down to write the newsletter. And as I described a little while ago, for me, it's a collection. It's a reflection of things that I've been thinking about, that I've been reading, that I've been listening to publication readers, sponsors behind it, all of, all of that aside, that's one of the most valuable exercises that I do every week because when I'm sitting down to write the morning shakeout, nobody can bother me. Oftentimes a good chunk of it is getting written after dinner on, on Monday night, after my wife has gone to bed, after the phone stops ringing, people aren't texting me, emails aren't coming <laughs> in because I have a big block of uninterrupted time and I'm working on various aspects of it throughout the week, but that's where I have a big block of un uninterrupted time to actually like process all of these things that I've been thinking about. Okay. And for me, the act of writing is thinking. And so that's me thinking about, you know, these things I've been thinking about that I've been, that I've been reading, what I've taken away from them, like podcasts that I've listened to going through my notes and, and seeing like what it was that I, I learned from that podcast or that I found inspiring about it, or that I think other people or myself will find interesting about it and, and writing those things down. So it's a lot of, it's a processing for me and, and reflection for me putting it out in the world for, for other people aside, like that's been just a really valuable exercise and something that I look forward to every week, just to have that, that chunk of uninterrupted time to be with my own thoughts and to make sense of all these different things that I've come across over the course of a week, oftentimes in passing or right before I was to move on to something else, I couldn't give it the attention that it deserves and to actually give it that attention and then to synthesize it and put it into this one comprehensive volume every week, which then in turn does get sent out to a rather large readership. Mm. You have a fairly extensive media diet as you're putting the newsletter together. Are there any particular authors or content creators or, or publications that you look to for inspiration as you build the morning shakeout? Not necessarily for putting articles in each edition, but like, wow, what these people are doing is so cool. I like the way they approach the craft. I want to take a little bit of that and incorporate it into my own thing. Yeah, there are a number of inspirations, many of which have zero relationship to running at all. So there's a writer that I follow. His name is John Gruber. Mm. He has a blog called Daring Fireball, and he writes about Apple, the company. And he's been doing this since 2002, I believe. And he does it full time. He has this blog and he has his own podcast. And he doesn't send out an email newsletter or anything, but I just really liked how he wrote about Apple and just the way that he 
did similar things to what I was doing, like synthesized kind of a lot of this stuff linked off to things that he found interesting. And I think a, a lot of my style certainly comes from that. And there are other people who do similar things, but he was someone that before I launched the morning shakeout that I'd followed for years and still follow to, to this day. And I really was just inspired by his consistency and just the quality. And that's the other thing that I take a lot of pride in is just the overall quality of the output. And that's something I was inspired by from John Gruber of Daring Fireball and then his accompanying podcast, which is very different from my podcast. This is called The Talk Show. And he has kind of a regular rotation of guests that he is talking to about very like particular topics. So he's not getting to know his guest every time. He knows them like they're, they're friends, they're colleagues, mm. but they'll talk for, I don't know, an hour and a half to three hours sometimes about products and tech trends and that sort of thing. And what I like about his show, and I've since changed this, but this is how I got the Morning Shakeout podcast going is he has no intro to his show. He does have sponsors and he does his ad reads in the middle of the show and he does them live, but he had no intro of the show. It was just, you know, hey, Finn, welcome to the talk show. And they would get into the conversation. And for the first maybe like 20, 25 episodes of the morning shakeout, that's what I did. I didn't have any intro at all. It was just like, you know, hey, Finn, welcome to the morning shakeout podcast. And that was definitely directly inspired by John Gruber. And there are some other writers that I, I follow as well. Austin Cleon, who is an artist and a, a writer who I've had the good fortune to, to meet. And he is a regular blogger. He's very consistent with blogging on his own website. And I really look at the Morning Shakeout newsletter in a lot of ways. It's a blog in email form is kind of what it is that I put out once a week rather than every day or every other day. But Austin Cleon blogs regularly. He's got a great newsletter that comes out every week where he links off to things that he's written or that he's found interesting. And that's been a huge inspiration to me. There's a woman that I follow named Ann Friedman, who a, another non-runner as far as I know, but journalist. And she's had her newsletter for a very long time, started as like a tiny letter. And she just has an interesting interesting way of putting it together that I've taken bits and pieces from. And she's been a, a big inspiration to me over the years, just in terms of like how I've thought about putting the newsletter together or different or ways that I've organized my website, for example, that sort of thing. So those are like a few of the big ones who inspired me and whose work I still follow to, to this day and taken, you know, I think a lot of us do this in various aspects of our life. You take you know, bits and pieces of and you iterate on it and sort of make it your own. Right. This last question here is sort of about style, but it's also kind of meta. I'm curious because you have such a big audience and I'm sure you have plenty of people replying to your newsletters each week. I know I have in the past. How do you balance the tastes of the audience with what interests you and in, in what you want to put out? It's a good question because one of the biggest things that I've struggled with is trying to please the audience. It causes a lot of stress. And I think if you try to live up to anyone's expectations other than your own, I mean, living up to your own expectations is hard enough, but living up to someone else's expectations is really challenging and, and really stressful. And that's been one of my biggest challenges in all the time that I've been doing this. And I've accepted at this point that it's probably always going to be there to some degree. But when I've had the most fun writing or putting out the podcast. It's when I am pursuing the things that interest me the most. Mm. And 
when I'm doing that and I'm just living up to my own expectations and I'm following my own interests and curiosities, you're never going to make everyone happy all of the time. But my hope is that through the things that I share, that there are enough people out there who are interested in at least some of it, that they're going to come back regularly and see what it is that I've put out. But I've also had to accept that if I try to you know, please a certain segment of my audience or a loud voice that's like, hey, I can't believe you didn't write about this or that. That's when it is least enjoyable to me and feels like the least fulfilling. So I've really had to just keep myself focused on what it is that interests me and that I'm curious about and follow that as deeply as I can, knowing that if I do that, there's going to be people who are also interested in that, or maybe they weren't, if they didn't know that they were, but because I wrote about it, then all of a sudden they're in a spot where they want to dig a little bit deeper and check out maybe a particular writer or learn more about a particular topic, that, that sort of thing. That's something that I'm constantly wrestling with, but I've also gotten a lot better at reminding myself to just stay the course and follow my own interests and curiosities. I love that answer. That's a fantastic answer. It might be one of the best overall messages we've heard on the show to date. So I want to talk a little bit about coaching and then we can go to this lightning round of questions. But before we get into them, can you just give the audience a little bit of an idea of who you coach, how you got into coaching and what your overarching philosophy is in this area of your work life? So I started coaching without really knowing that I was coaching really in 2004 when I graduated from college. And I had some former, at that time, they were like immediately former college teammates we had just graduated who wanted to stick with the sport of running and were either going to run some club cross country that fall in the Boston area where I was living at the time or move up and try either half marathon or marathon. And I've always had this obsessive interest in training and training philosophy and training schedules and workouts and how people prepare for different distances and different events. And I mean, that that's been going on since, you know, the late nineties when I got into the sport in, in high school. And so my college teammates knew that and asked me to write them training schedules for different events that they were training for. So that's what I did. I would just email them training mm. schedules for a race that was, you know, eight weeks away, 10 weeks away. And we were in touch anyway, cause we we're close friends, but I'd ask them about their training and I didn't even know that virtual coaching was something that existed at the time. I mean, my idea of coaching was what I experienced in high school and college was you show up to practice every day and you've got a coach there that you meet with and they're at your workouts and they hold the watch and, um, they're at your races and you, you consult with them. But I guess that was the start of like my, my virtual coaching career, but I just thought of it as like, oh, I'm just writing schedules for my friends. And then, you know, cause I'd be curious anyway, just asking them like, right. you know, how they felt about it and how they felt their training was progressing, what adjustments we, we may need to make, like that sort of thing. So I, I did that for a few years out of school and it wasn't long after that, that I started doing some freelance writing for some different publications, New England Runner, Running Times, which no longer exists, but still is my favorite running publication of all time. Mm -hmm. And eventually kind of competitor magazine where I, I worked for six years, competitor.com, triathlete magazine, that sort of thing. And one of the main things I wrote about was training. And I was just a writer, but I was a writer who had an interest in training, an athlete who had an interest in training. And 
in those articles, it wasn't my expertise that was coming through. I would go to sources, other coaches, other athletes, and ask them about training for a mile or how they taper for a marathon or what their best recovery strategies, you know, kind of, you know, kind of were. And without really like knowing it at the time, that was a very educational period for me because I was just asking questions of, of, of more knowledgeable people about training. And because I had a curious interest in it myself, it wasn't hard for me to ask those questions. And then I would apply some of those learnings to the schedules that I was writing for, you know, some of, some of my own quote unquote athletes who I didn't really consider athletes at the time. But then through those articles that were in magazines and on the internet, I would have people reach out to me and ask if I coached. And I was like, yeah, sure. I'll write you training schedules. And I would do that for maybe five or six people at a time. And I did that for a few years. And then I worked at a running store for a while as well. And we would have customers who'd come in and ask if we had coaching through the store and I'd say, well, no, we don't have any formal coaching program through the store, but I'm happy to help you you know, prepare for one of your events. And I did all this for free for years. I mean, I, for, yeah, for 2004 to maybe 2009 or so, I was doing this sort of stuff. And I had athletes who were improving in cross country and in the half marathon, marathon distances mostly, which is where people wanted the most help. And I just, I really loved it. I didn't really see it becoming something that was going to become full-time. It's just really hard to do. And there's not really a straight path there, but fast forward to 2016, when I left competitor, it was to help found a startup here in the Bay area that was geared toward making virtual coaching more affordable and accessible. And long story short, that company didn't last more than three months. And I had to figure out what I was going to do to make a living. And my wife gave me a month to figure it out. And I knew the two things that I wanted to do were coach and write. So I figured out a way to do that. And the first thing that I did was take on a few more athletes. So I started coaching like close to 20 athletes in 2016. And I've, you know, I've kind of curtailed that number. But to rewind a couple of years, I moved to the Bay in 2014. My wife took a job in San Francisco. And that was really my first exposure to ultra running. Mm. And I didn't have any real interest in it before 2014 as an athlete or a coach. I didn't pay attention to the sport, didn't coach ultra runners. But when I moved here to the Bay, the first place that I, I went to meet people was San Francisco Running Company. And I think a lot of your listeners are probably aware of SFRC and just some of the folks who have kind of, you know, oh, gone yeah, we through had, SFRC. Uh, yeah, we had Larissa Rivers on the show. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, she was a, a founder. She and her husband, Brett, who are good friends, you know, were become good friends are, you know, were founders of, of SFRC and they created this incredible community and just happened to have some of the top ultra runners in the country, which kind of blew my mind. I was like, wow. I'm like, you have in this tiny town of Mill Valley, the, at the time, national 50k champion and Alex Varner, 100k champion and Jorge Maravi, 100 mile champion in Matt Lay, how you had, I think it was three men in the top 10 at Western States mm. that year in, in 2014. There's just like some incredible runners here. And again, like curiosity kind of got the best of me when I was at SFRC on these runs with these people. Like, how do you guys train for these events? Like, I had no idea. It was totally new to me. I mean, I ran my first 50k within three months of moving here. I mean, so I you know, I kind of drank the Kool-Aid pretty quick and, you know, learned a lot of lessons myself as an athlete. And it wasn't too long after that, that 
a few athletes here and then even beyond the Bay asked me to coach them. And I started basically started coaching ultra runners and I think it was like late 2014, early 2015, somewhere around there. A number of whom I, I still work with today. And I mean, I've just, I've, you know, I shouldn't say I've always had, but you know, certainly now I, I have an interest in all areas of, of the sport just generally, but also as, you know, as a coach, like I mentioned before, like ever since I got into the sport in high school, I've always been curious about how people train for things. And ultra running was a novel thing for me in, in 2014. And it was just something I wanted to learn more and more about. And I had athletes ask me to, to coach them. And I, I was like, look, I've run like literally at the time, like I've run 250 Ks and I've never coached an ultra runner. So I'm not sure that I, I know what I'm doing, but if you're willing to like work with me, I think we can figure it out together. And that's the exact conversation I had with Tim Tollefson back in 2015. And we still work together to this day and have been kind of figuring it out together. And that, you know, I think that's how I approached all my coaching, certainly how I approached ultra running, but I've never wanted to, I guess, pigeonhole myself as like someone who just coaches half marathoners, marathoners, someone who just coaches ultra runners. I mean, I coach people training for everything from the mile to, you know, tour de jeans, you know, recently. So it's a pretty wide range. And, and I love that, you know, myself, because I think while these events are very different and how you train for some of these events is obviously very, very different. Um, I, I learn a lot from every athlete that I work with, regardless of what they're training for, what level they are. And I think that just makes me a, a better all around and more well-rounded coach at the end of the day. So I don't know if that answers your original question. It's a very long, rambly uh, answer, but I'm happy to dig into any aspect of it. That no, 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 no. Like. I love it. And by the way, I love the insight into the SFRC culture as a very, very, very amateur historian of the sport. I think that someone's got to write a book someday about that like three-year time block between like 2014 and 2017 because there was just a lot of cool stuff happening. Well, in 2014, I mean, I was still working for Competitor and I wrote a feature for the magazine that year, which is still online. It's now Podium oh. Runner. Competitor is now Podium okay. Runner. Okay. Um, but the name of the story was Bros on a Mountain. And it was mostly focused on the men, but I did mention some of the women who were in the area at the time. And then historically, I mean, you had Mag Magda Boulay, who won Western States like a year or two after that over in the East Bay. You know, you've got Eo Wang here who I work with, you've got, you know, historically like Ann Trayson years and years and years ago, but I, I wrote this article like bros on a mountain. And it was really about what was happening in 2014, where I just mentioned you had like all these national champions who were living in, in Mill Valley through the top 10 at, you know, at, at Western States. And they would run together on the weekends at SFRC and run up Mount Tam together on, you know, on Wednesday morning. It's not the comprehensive volume, but it's, it's, I think, uh, certainly a chapter in the story. So I actually, I, a, a simple Google search, literally just type in bros on a mountain. It's the first result that pops up in Google. And I'm looking forward to reading this. This is sweet. Okay. So one thing I do want to touch on before we wind down is uh, there's just a lot of people that follow this show that are trying to break into coaching. And maybe you could talk about how to get educated, how to build an athlete roster, how to start your business. What are maybe the top two or three pieces of advice you have for newcomers? Start coaching. Number one, I get a lot of inquiries every week from aspiring coaches who, before they start working with an athlete, it's like, well, what certification should I get? What book should I read? Is this workout better than that workout? Like all these sorts of questions. And I always ask like, well, have you, have you worked with an athlete before? It's like, no, but I want to get everything right before I do. And it's like, it's look, I mean, I've been doing this for 
17 years now, it's a continual process of, of learning and, and iterating. But at some point, you just got to start coaching an athlete. And it doesn't have to be a, a top athlete and you don't have to be getting paid for it. But I think you need to to learn how to work with other people because coaching is a relationship. It's not a dictatorship where you're like, you do this. And they're like, yes, sir, I will do that. No, it's, it's a relationship. I mean, you, you need to look at it that way. And the key to any successful relationship, and this goes for coaching too, is communication. So without that relationship, without having someone mm. to communicate with, you know, it doesn't matter what books you read or what workouts you have them do, but you're not really going to get anywhere. So I think you just got to start coaching people and, you know, working with them on a very, like, start slow, you know, don't, you don't have to fill a roster right away. Like work with, work with one person, write them, get to know them, write them a schedule, let them give you feedback on it. Be open to getting that, you know, that feedback. I always look at coaching as a, it's a partnership, really. There's a lot of back and forth with the athletes. And I think you just, at some point you just got to start coaching people. So I always say kind of my number one piece of advice is start coaching someone. Cause you're always going to be learning along mm. the way. You're always going to be reading. You should always be reading the latest articles, the latest research. You should always be asking questions of, of other coaches and trying to learn as, as much as possible. So I guess that would be the other part that is concurrent with that is like, you never stop learning. I mean, Joe V Hill, who, who actually did coach some ultra runners during the course of his coaching career, more well-known for all that he did at Adam state college and the national titles they won there, but he was also Dina Castor's coach founded team USA and mammoth lakes. I mean, is widely regarded as like one of, if not the best U S distance coach of, you know, all time. And I've been fortunate enough to meet Joe on a, on a few occasions and actually spent like 45 minutes with him in a Starbucks at the Olympic trials in, in 2012. And I remember what he told me that day is like, I get up every day still at 4am and I read through the latest research that kind of comes through. He's mm. like, I'm always, I'm always learning, you know, and this is someone who was like, a PhD, you know, in exercise science. He knows, already knows a lot, but he never feels like he knows everything. That's one big thing that I've taken with me and I advise other coaches is you're always going to be learning. So at some point you just got to start coaching, you know, don't worry about finding like the right, the right books or the right course. Cause those things are, you know, you read through one book, you're on to the next one. You take a course, you're on to the next one. Some of them are good and some of them aren't. There's no like one right way to do it. You've always got to be learning. So I think those are the two biggest things is like start coaching someone or, or a couple people. Don't worry about making a career out of it or making a business out of it. Just learn the craft, how to work with people and then constantly just be educating yourself. Follow your curiosity, ask questions, always be learning. Never feel like you've got all the answers. You can gain knowledge and you can gain confidence and you can share that with other people, but you should always be, you know, asking questions and hungry to learn more. I love that emphasis on continuous learning. And I feel like even if you're not a coach, that applies in any work you do. I love that. Mm -hmm. As we wind down here, we'll go into the lightning round. Are there any books, podcasts, uh, TV shows, or movies that you've consumed recently that have changed the way you work or generally see the world? The first podcast that comes to mind, and this is one of my favorite podcasts in general, but this particular episode was really impactful on me was an episode of the Rich Roll podcast and his guest was Dave Cho, who I didn't know anything about before I listened to the show. I almost didn't listen to this episode because I was like, I don't know this, who this guy is, but he's an artist, an incredible artist and apparently very well known for, for his art, but that's not you know exactly my world. But he talked just a lot about his story and battles with like non-substance addictions. And that's just something that I've struggled with myself in my own life. And I was 
interested to, to learn more about. And I didn't know that I would learn about in this conversation, but just hearing him tell his story, I think helped me feel just a little more seen. And it was just personally really impactful on me. So nothing to do with running at all, really, but that's probably the most impactful podcast episode that I've listened to recently. Right on. You've already touched on a lot of important things like curiosity and continuous education and consistency, but is there anything else that your work in coaching, podcasting, and newsletters has taught you that you think might have widespread applicability that anyone in this audience can take with them to apply to their own lives? Yeah. Two words, pay attention. I think that's the biggest you know, takeaway that I have through certainly all of all of my work is pay attention to what it is that you're thinking about, that you're consuming, whether that's stuff that you're reading, podcasts that you're listening to, movies, TV shows that you're watching. Like if you're a coach, pay attention to your athletes, how they're feeling, what they're struggling with. I think that's what it all comes down to at the end of the day is just pay attention. It sounds so simple, but I think a lot of us are very distracted in many ways in our life. And if you're distracted and you're quote unquote paying attention to all these you know, different things, you're not really paying attention. So I think that's the biggest thing is to just slow down and, and pay attention. And I think that can take you a long way. Two more questions here. I'm looking for a recommendation with this one. Is there a particular song or album that you've had on repeat, repeat recently that the audience should add to a future Spotify playlist? I am a big music fan. I love live performances. This is not an album but it's worth looking up. I, I don't know if it's on Spotify, but it's on YouTube. That's where I found it. But Dave Grohl of Foo Fighters fame, also Nirvana and other bands. He's actually on tour right now. I'm hoping to see him in December when he comes through Sacramento two days after CIM. But anyway, it's a little, <laughs> that's a little uh, tangent. He has been playing live shows recently and a lot of them end up on YouTube, whether they should or not. And I just think he's such an incredible musician, but really just like a great guy. And two things that stood out to me recently that people listening to this, if you're interested, should look up and check out. One few weeks ago, he did a show in LA. And I don't know if anyone remembers like the drum battle that he had over the last year with this 11-year-old girl in Canada who challenged him to a drum off. Well, anyway, he had her at his show in LA and she played the drums to Everlong and it was freaking amazing. And she was just amazing. She's a, she's an incredible musician, but I mean, just the, the way that he introduced her onto the stage and just the admiration he had for her and the like literal stage that he gave her, that gesture was just really cool. And then the other thing is a little more recently, he did a show in New York and you know, Dave Grohl was the drummer for Nirvana before Kurt Cobain, right? the lead singer of that band, sadly took his life. And this was like almost 30 years ago now. But I mean, that was obviously a tough time for Dave. And I think he and Kurt had a very contentious relationship. And over the last few decades, he doesn't really talk much about Nirvana or Kurt or their relationship because I think it hurt really bad. But he seems to be making some progress there. So recently he did a show in New York and they played, I shouldn't say they, they, yeah, I mean, whoever was there, the sound engineer played um, Smells Like Teen Spirit over a speaker. So it was Kurt Cobain's voice and all the the instrumentals except the drums. And Dave Grohl played the drums uh, mm. to 
you know, to, to that song. And it's awesome. I mean, it's just, it's awesome. I mean, he, you know, he could clearly play that in, you know, in his sleep, but the cool thing about watching it on YouTube is you can look at his body language, like back to like paying attention. Like these are things that I, I look for, but you look at his body language and when Kurt starts singing, you can see Dave just smile I and mean, you can see that it took him back to a place and not like a big YouTube person. The only thing I really watch on YouTube are like running videos and live music performances, but that's, what's cool about a, a live music performance, especially this one is you can hear Dave Grohl play the drums and just listening to that on its own is pretty amazing. But to see him just a few weeks ago, almost 30 years removed or whatever it's been, um, he hears Kurt's voice and he's hitting the drums and you just look at his facial expression and he just smiles. It's pretty cool. It's pretty special. So, I mean, that would be my recommendation in that regard. If we can, we will add the link to the show notes. That's awesome. The last question here is inspired by a recent Tim Ferriss episode. I guess it's an old episode, but he's talking to Debbie Millman, who's like this famous designer. And I'm Oh yeah, sure Design Matters. That's a great yeah. podcast if you've never listened to it. She's had some pretty incredible guests over the years. I mean, the aforementioned Austin Cleon has been on that show. Seth yep. Godin, who's another yep. big inspiration of mine. That's an awesome podcast. I have listened to that episode of, of her on Tim Ferriss' show too. Oh, awesome. So I'm curious, what do you want to be doing 10 years from now? I have no idea. I'm not a great long-term planner, to be completely honest. I wouldn't say that I'm reactionary either. If I look a year out, I feel like that's a long time. You know, just so much could happen in that amount of time. And I also, not that I want to avoid disappointment or not set myself up for disappointment, but I just don't know. I think that allows me to be curious and open-minded to what could happen and what opportunities could arise if nothing really changes and I'm still interested in doing all the things I'm doing. It wouldn't surprise me to be doing some version of what I'm doing now. But if I look back 10 years, right, to 2011, I'd been in California for a year. I was living in San Diego at the time. I, I didn't know my wife yet. I could not have ever in my wildest dreams predicted like this is where I would be and what I would be doing. So I don't even try to play that game for the next 10 years. And that excites me. It leaves me open to possibility and curiosity. And I'm not someone who really makes long-term plans, but I'm also not someone who like takes a long time to decide on things either. And I'm not afraid to make a very hard pivot if I need to. And I think not having long-term plans just puts me in a better position to do that or allows me to do that maybe. That's a great answer. And actually, now that I think about it, it might even be more fun, like you just said, to look back 10 years prior and to try to piece together how you got to where you are now. So maybe that's something that the audience can think about afterwards. Mario, this has been so fun. I cannot thank you enough for your time. Before we head out here, where can, yeah, where can listeners find you on social media? Where do you want to point them to? Well, I have no personal social media myself. I got rid of that a little over a year ago, but the morning shakeout, which is the name of my podcast and my newsletter does have social media. That's at the AM shakeout. So you could follow those accounts, the Instagram feed really is focused on the podcast and promoting the episode that came out that week and then highlighting some past guests who have done some interesting things. So you can follow that if you don't already. And then there is a Twitter account by the same handle, the AM Shakeout. I've got a guy named Jeff Stern who, ultra runner actually, uh, runs for Solomon. He's been managing the social media for the morning shakeout for the last, I think, two years now. So definitely check out those feeds. But the the best places to go are the morningshakeout.com slash subscribe. You can sign up for the newsletter and every Tuesday morning you'll 
get my take on what it is that I'm thinking about, what I'm interested in, what I've been reading, what I've been listening to, and then the Morning Shakeout podcast, uh, which comes out every week as well and is available on all the major podcast platforms. Awesome, Mario. Thanks again. And until next time. That's a wrap. What do you think? Mario is someone I have looked up to for a while. In fact, he's one of the reasons I wanted to start my own thing. So yeah, I'm really grateful he was willing to spend some time with us in this episode. I often like to recap my favorite moments from episodes. And from this one, it's lessons that I think can be applied to anyone's hobbies and or work life. And for me, those were his emphasis on continuous learning, consistency, and paying attention to what you pay attention to. I hope those conversation threads resonated with you as well. As I said in the intro, go subscribe to The Morning Shakeout. You will not be disappointed. Um, moving on here, just one update from Single Track HQ. The weekly newsletter is finally live, and similar to the podcast, it will go out every Sunday night. What can you expect? Uh, commentary and links to content that will make you a better, more informed trail and ultra runner. To subscribe, simply go to finnmelanson.com and enter your email address in the form fill out there. It takes about two seconds. That's all I got for you. I hope you like the newsletter. Looking forward to your feedback, and we will be back next Sunday with more content.